As I was reading the passage this week and thinking about the idea of judges, I thought back to the 70s and 80s when I used to watch the Olympics a lot. And there was a running joke about gymnastics and the Russian judges. And if you lived through the 70s, 80s, you remember this, that you did watch a gymnastics performance and the Russian gymnast could fall down and land on her face and the Russian judges would give her a 10. And then the American would come through and do this amazing act and then you'd get like, everyone, there'd be a whole bunch of nines and tens from all the other judges and then like a four from the Russian judge. And that was a bit of an exaggeration, but that's what it felt like was this kind of unfair judgment that was going on where one side was favored over another. And also maybe a little bit of hypocrisy going on. And so I think about that because that's in part what this passage is about as we're reading through the book of Romans. So we started a series on the book of Romans a few weeks ago. We're going to be going through it at least through Christmas, through part of it, probably pick it up again after Christmas. And as I promised, this isn't going to be a three-year series in Romans, uh, which some churches do. I was reading one commentator the other day, and he was talking about, he's a, he was talking on this passage here, and had already preached 16 sermons just on Romans 1. And, and there's some value in that sometimes, but there's also some things that are missed. And I think sometimes we miss the bigger picture, and we miss a lot of things that are going on. So this letter from Paul, Paul is this early follower of Jesus who has been changed and transformed by the good news of Jesus and compelled to go and to share it with the world, particularly with the non-Jewish people of the world. And he shares it by traveling and talking, and he also shares it through these letters. And this is one of those letters written to this church in Rome, a place where he has not been, a church he probably didn't start, but a church that has existed. And he's writing, and we're not entirely sure why he's writing. He doesn't come right out and say, this is why I'm writing. Seems that there's some divisions in the church between different kinds of people, this group called the strong and the weak, and their view, and basically a church of people who look down on each other, two groups that one both think they're better than the other. He's also writing because he's getting ready to go on a missionary journey, hopefully to Spain, and he wants to gain their support. And he's writing also to explain to them his authority as an apostle, as a follower of Jesus, as one who can proclaim it. He's, proclaim, he's explaining to them what this gospel is or how he understands it. They've already heard it, but he's wanting them to understand he's saying the same thing. And so in many ways, Romans is seen as this more complete picture, one of the most complete pictures we have in the New Testament of what the gospel is all about. And that's the central message of the book of Romans is the gospel. And the gospel is a proclamation of Jesus as the saving and risen king. The gospel isn't simply a, a, a salvation message, but it's a much bigger picture. It's a picture of all that God has done and this goodness of what he's doing and he's doing and how it affects their lives. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 is a key verse because he talks about, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But he says it's also the power of God. And so when we talk about the righteousness, the goodness of God, but that it has power. And so it's not simply that God's righteousness is, we're talking about that God is right and just and good all the time, but also that there's a power in God to make things right. And so the gospel isn't simply a proclamation that Jesus is good, but that in Jesus, Jesus is making things right. And that'll become an important thing here. So as we think about the gospel as an announcement and as this power, it's a power to change our lives. And so, as Jan alluded to in Romans chapter 1, there's this big, long story, a big, long passage, and it, it talks about all the evils of a group called them. And we like that kind of language, don't we? We like to talk about them. 
whoever they may be, because that's one of those things where sometimes we have a conversation and you'll hear people talk, it's like, oh, they. And you sometimes wonder, who's this they we're talking about here? But the they, and it goes on, and if you get to like down to verse 28 of chapter 1, and it goes through, there's like these 20 lists of sins, you know, wickedness, evil, greed, deceit, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent. You get, the, you get the point. They're not very good people, whoever they is. And it's going on, and he's saying, oh, it's about them, them, them. And you get the sense of the people hearing this letter to the Romans saying, oh, thank God that's not me. And then chapter 2, and remembering again that chapter and verse divisions are something added later. Paul's been going on them, them, and you hear the people like, oh yeah, yeah, they, they, they're so bad. And then sudden switch, and you, whoa, wait a minute, Paul. You were preaching, now you're meddling. Says you, therefore, have no excuse. What do you, what do you mean, no excuse? You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge someone, You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And so he's kind of in some sense caught them in a little bit of a trap. And even we're going to look at chapter 2 over the course of two weeks and it's kind of an artificial break because it's all kind of continues on in this argument, this sense of these two groups of people who see themselves as a different place. But Paul's kind of flipped, sprung the trap on them in some sense. Where all of a sudden we're talking about them, them, them. And all of a sudden he says, you. He's like, whoa. Because he wants them to see where they're at. He wants to see that it's not just that group of people, but it's also us. And what Paul is doing is establishing something about the human condition. He's establishing this reality that we all fall short. We all miss the mark. We're all sinners. He's also establishing something about God, who God is. The human condition is what's been described in chapter 1, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie, that we decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. That we, we have individual sins, but we're also in slavery to sin. But what he starts to expose here in chapter 2 is there's also this bent to hypocrisy. And over the last uh, 20 plus years of ministry, I don't know how many different articles and books I've seen about why people don't like the church and negative views that people have the church. And I can guarantee you that whenever there's a list of the three, five, seven reasons, whatever number of reasons it is that people don't like church, I can guarantee you that one thing that almost always shows up on that list, hypocrisy, right? The big H word. It's not hell, it's hypocrisy. And I think in part... There's maybe some truth to that, because I was thinking, I was reading a story the other day about a man who was driving, and he pulled up to a stoplight, or he was, he was driving along, and the light turned yellow. There's always that moment of decision, right? You're driving along, light turns yellow. What do you do? Put the gas down, put on the brake, gas, brake, gas, brake. Well, this guy decided to brake, and he stopped at the light, and the car behind him was not very happy about this. The woman in the car behind him, she starts honking, she's waving, she's screaming at, she's going off on him, and all of a sudden, there's a tapping on the window of her car. She looks up and she sees the police officer standing there. And she says, uh, I'm sorry, 
Officer, is there a problem? He says, yes, ma'am, would you step out of the car? And she says, well, what's, what's going on? He said, well, ma'am, I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker in the back of your car, as well as the follow me to Sunday school class and the little fish icon in the back. And so I just have to assume that this car is stolen based on your recent behavior. <laughs> Hypocrisy, right? <laughs> and so there's this sense of we see this charge, and, but we realize that hypocrisy has different meanings and that we use it to say different things when we talk about it. Sometimes that it's just a refusal to acknowledge our own faults. That's part of what Paul is like. Sometimes when people are accused of being hypocrites, there's just an inability to see themselves. Sometimes it's this idea of hypocrisy can refer to the fact that we pass judgment on others. And sometimes hypocrisy is used, I think, unfairly. Sometimes hypocrisy is just a broad label for, like, you tell people they're doing the wrong thing. And so hypocrisy gets used in different ways, but here, what's Paul getting at is this sense of how we look at other people and we see their sins, but we're unable to see our own. Or we judge them based on something and the very same thing is going on in our lives. So as I think back of what it looks like here in church, and I say here in church, meaning us too, this isn't again, remember them, 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 you, <laughs> us. And so he's going on, he's saying, what does it look like? And so in one eighteen through 32, he's gone back through this big long thing and one of the things he sent, spends a couple verses on is sexuality. And a couple of months ago, we did a study on human sexuality here with an adult group, and we talked some about this, and the author, Preston Sprinkle, had a great quote in his book, and he said this. He says, we Christians tend to vilify the sins we're least likely to commit. We Christians tend to vilify the sins we're least likely to commit. And so part of the hypocrisy that sometimes gets leveled against the church comes to issues like LGBTQ where we're quick to point out what we see as sin in that, but then fail to see the sin within ourselves. And see, fail to see the sin within a church. We said, well, that group of people, them, they're so bad. Oh, but you know, those two living together, that's okay. Or whatever other, you know, the pornography, well, they're just, you know, it's not really hurting anyone. And so we select out and we say, these sins are bad. These sexual sins are so bad. But those sexual sins, oh, that's a different category because that's them and that's us. And it's a failure to acknowledge our own sins or recognize them. And so it's a question of how do we speak of the sins of others? And so that's what Paul is getting at here is he's like, as we're looking at it, we're saying, how do we talk about other people's sins? And do we talk about other people's sins in the same sort of setting, the same sort of language that we refer to the sins in our own lives? Are we quick to condemn the sins of others and quick to write off our own and make excuses? And so one of the things we need to do is maybe at some times in church spend more time confessing and a little less time condemning. Acknowledging where we're at. But we also see what Paul is getting at here is that hypocrisy is also forgetting God's mercy. Because again, we have this sense of where we're quick to condemn others but look at what Paul says about God. He says, so when you, a mere human being, this is Romans chapter 2 beginning at verse 3. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness 
is intended to lead you to repentance. Do sins deserve judgment? Yeah, that's true. But it's only part. See what happened, what Paul is getting at is this group of people, and by this group of people he's also meaning us, are quick to judge and they miss their own sin, but they're also despising God by this quickness to judge because God is an impartial judge. And God also shows patience and mercy because that line, forgetting forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And what he's saying is we look sometimes and we want God's judgment to come down on people. Well, why isn't he judging them? Well, that's part of God's kindness, his goodness, and that kindness is to lead to repentance. And, and it's part of an invitation. And when so, what Paul is getting at is when we're so quick to judge, we're kind of trampling on God's kindness. We're taking his place saying, well, I'm here to judge you. God, God's taking his good time, but I'm here. And I'm going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Paul's saying, is that really your place? To make those kind of choices? But Paul is getting at something else. He's getting at something that is a much harder thing to understand. And I'm still kind of wrapping my head a little bit around it. One is that God is an impartial judge, but He also judges based on deeds. And so I want you to stick with me here because we have to follow through. So I'm going to reread verses 6 through 13 and then highlight a couple of the verses. I want you to listen to what it says about God's judgment. So beginning of verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's eye, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And if you're listening, you hear this verb to do a whole lot. So Romans 2, 6, for God will repay each person according to what they have done. Verse 11, for God does not show favoritism. And then in verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law and who will be declared righteous. So Paul's getting at two things here. I want to pay attention. One is that God is impartial. There's not two systems. Kind of like the Russian. There's not two ways of judging people. And so for this group, he's talking to the Jews and the Gentiles. He's not saying, God doesn't look and say, well, you know, church people, we got one system for you. Unchurched people, we got another system for you. God doesn't say, well, you know, I'm going I'm to be a little kinder to you because you've been going to church for 50 years. You put a really big check in the offering last week. You read your Bible every day. What? He's saying, no, there's not two systems. There's one system. You're either righteous or unrighteous. And so Paul's getting at that here. And part of what he's doing is saying it's based on what you do. And this will come up later And remembering that reading in context. And that's, again, one of the challenges of doing a three-year-long series in Romans is we get sometimes stuck on a verse and fail to see the big picture of what's going on. And his point is, that the law is irrelevant if you don't live by it. He's making this point. He's saying, what are the, what's the point of all these rules? What is the point of all this if we don't live by it? 
It's not enough to know just what Jesus says, but we have to do it. Then some of you say, well, but wait a minute, Pastor. I've read the rest of Romans. In Romans 3, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, so my question is, do you think Paul knew what he wrote in chapter 2 when he wrote chapter 3? I think so. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think Paul's writing along and saying, ah, you know, yeah, judged according to deeds. No, not according to deeds. But somehow these two things have to go together. And so we're going to start a look at that today. We're not going to get all the way. And by the end of it, you may still have some questions. Here's the secret. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to leave church with a little bit of tension. It's okay to read your Bible and walk away saying, I, I'm not sure what, what to do with this. We like the quick answers. We, we're reading along and something doesn't make sense and we want to dive down to our study notes or, or look up our favorite teacher on YouTube or, or, or pull off our favorite book or try and remember what that pastor told us 20 years ago. But what I want you to invite you into is tension and a little bit of wondering is okay in the Christian life. We get there eventually. I'm not saying you want to remain in that same tension for 47 years. But don't always be so quick to rush through it because sometimes in the course of that tension, in the course of that wondering, that's where God speaks to us. It helps us to understand. So as we dive into this, I want to be clear on a couple of things so that you don't mishear me because, well, I know you'll mishear me because that's how it, that's the nature of communication. Not that you intentionally, but like, communication is always imperfect, right? I mean, we can know someone well, we can talk to them, and how many times do things go wrong because you just misunderstood what somebody's saying, misunderstood the intent of what it is? But so I want to try and be as clear as possible. First thing I want to be clear on, we can't earn our salvation, Okay? Right? We can't earn our salvation. Jesus' death is completely effective for our salvation, nothing else. Grace is a gift to us. All right? We're saved by grace. But it's a gift that calls for a response. It's a gift that calls for a response. There's a book by John Barclay. Well, actually, he wrote, two, he wrote um, Paul and the Gift of Grace and, and Paul and Grace. And it, well, one was like the 400-page version and one was the 200-page version. Um, and sometimes scholars do that. They write the really long book and then they realize the only people who read it are other people who are, are scholars. And so then they try and write a slightly less long book for others and they're still really hard to read. But um, John Barclay's book on Paul and the Gift of Grace um, has been labeled by many theologians, I and, and here's how I frame it. Um, there's a podcast I listen to, which is they bring on theologians and biblical scholars to talk to them about the books they've read or a particular thing they're working on. And then in the course of this podcast, often they do what's called a speed round. And they'll do knock-knock jokes with them or silly questions. But one of the questions they always ask the interviewees is, what is the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? And so they're talking to scholars across a wide range of studies and stuff. And they'll say, well, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? There are a whole lot of books written out there in biblical studies. John Barclay's book is named probably every third or fourth episode. 
as a significant study on grace. And he talks about the nature of what grace is. And one of the things that he talks about is this idea that grace is unconditioned, meaning it's for the unworthy. It's not based on anything we deserve, but it is not unconditional. And by that, he means that it's unconditioned. It's given to the unworthy, but it's not unconditional because grace expects a response. And it calls for a response of faith and of allegiance. Not just an inward, yeah, I believe that, but an outward embodied response. And that that faith unites us to Jesus and that that union with Jesus means the spirit and the power to do good. Which goes back to, remember 1, 16 and 17, it said what? The righteousness of God is the power of God for salvation. So God's grace is not simply this extension of mercy, but it's the power to do good. We're going to pick up on more on that next week, but just as a highlight or a kind of a teaser for next week, 229, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, not in circumcision, merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. And so this is a draws on these Old Testament themes of where it's a change that goes on inside of us. And so what the gospel is getting, what Paul is getting at is that God is remaking us. God isn't simply forgiving us of our sins. That's part of it. God is not simply forgiving us, but he's remaking us. That God provides the means for us to do the good. So one scholar wrote it this way. He says, final judgment can be what it is, and here are described in terms of deeds, because God always provides the means to do what God requires. In other words, God's gift is completely free. Again, salvation earns? No. God, we do not earn our salvation. By grace, it's a gift. We receive it by faith, and part of that faith includes our actions. And our actions, again, are a gift from God because God provides the means to do it. As we put faith in Christ, God gives the Spirit, and it's only by the power of the Spirit we do these good deeds. So actions are a facet of faith, but not an earning of salvation. And remember again, we got a whole 16 chapters to work this all out. And that's why I say, be patient. Don't, don't say, well, but pastor, you, we're going to get there as we roll through it. And you say, well, that means I have to come back another week. Yeah, you have to come back another week. <laughs> or two or 12 in order to, to get to the end of... But we realize that there are maybe some things that I'm saying are unclear, but when God, when Paul is talking here about God's judgment, it's according to deeds, but remembering how he frames deeds. That the works we do are a result or they're a component of our faith. They don't earn the salvation, but they're the way that we reflect and we receive God's gift. So we remember again, nothing to earn our salvation. Okay, I want to keep repeating that so we're not clear on and we're saved by grace, but grace is more than just saying the gift is unconditioned. Grace is a gift that doesn't leave us where we are. It's a power. And that's what we sometimes, that's where I, what I miss sometimes. I think of just grace as like, ah, oh, God lets you go. No, God doesn't just say, well, it's okay. But what God just says is, I don't want to leave you in that place. And that's why he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation. The power of God that brings salvation, if salvation is by our faith, a component of which is works, the gospel is the power to do those good things. 
The gospel is a power that leads to obedience. So we're in verse 5, he says, chapter 1, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience of faith, which he brings up again later on in chapter 14. Obedience not by human effort, but written on our hearts. This so as we think through this, we're thinking through the riches of who God is, that He's calling us to these good deeds, but He's not leaving us alone. He's not saying, oh, people, you need to do good stuff. Good luck with that. But instead, He sends His Son, Jesus, who dies for us. He gives a gift to us, and then He says, in response to this gift, I want you to express your faith, your allegiance in Christ, and as a component of that faith. I want you to do good, and I'm going to give you the power through the power of the Spirit to do those good things. So God isn't judging us by something He doesn't provide the means to do. God doesn't say, I want you to do good stuff. I know you're slaves to sin, but do your best. Instead, He says, I want you to do good, and you can do good when you put your faith in Jesus, because when you put your faith in Jesus, I'll give you the power of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit will do you the ability to do good. Therefore, when I judge you according to what you've done, I'm being fair, because I gave you the power to do the good things. And so when we read this passage that maybe causes a little tension in us, as we're reading along and we keep seeing Paul, you know, repay each person according to what they've done, to those who persist in doing good, he will give eternal life. And we'll say, well, wait a minute, Paul. I thought it was a free gift. It is. And we say, oh, I'm so confused. That's what chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all the way through 16 are for. But, but it's to kind of help us understand. But God is giving us the ability to do the good things as we put our faith in Jesus. But let's come back full circle on the story here. One is that we realize God's inviting us to consider our actions. You know, how do we behave? What are the ways in which we act? Because our faith in Christ is to be demonstrated by our good deeds. And so He's calling us to do the good deeds, but also realizing there's a trap in that call to do good deeds. Because part of the trap in doing the good deeds is we start to look down on the others. Or we start to isolate and say, here's the good deeds and here's the bad deeds. And church people do these good things and they do the bad things here. And we don't often realize that like, oh, those things are a lot of the same things. that go. Because I want to invite you to Listen again to this list from chapter 1 where Paul has gone through and talked about all the them stuff. We think, oh, well, that's just people that are not part of us. Because when he flips that switch, he says, you. He's become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Any greed in the church? Eh, okay. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Gossips, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Well, we don't have any gossips, arrogant people, boastful people in the church, right? They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. No understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. That's not just a them thing. That's an us thing. 
And so what he's invited us to do is like, don't be so quick to judge. Don't be so quick to judge the people outside. But again, to reflect on our own place. And so that's where I think one of the practices that I would invite you into this week as a reflection on this is, is confession. We sometimes think of that as a Catholic thing. You're like, well, you go to the little booth and you talk to the priest and you tell them all the bad things you've done or, you know, once a month at communion we, we do like a 30-second confession. Confession should be a regular part of what we do. And it's not a beating ourselves up, but it's a reminder of the ways we fall short. It's a reminder of God's grace to us. So we can confess. And we can also invite ourselves to confess and to look and say, in what ways am I quick to judge others but fail to see the things in myself? And when we have trouble understanding or seeing that, ask someone close to you. Because sometimes they can see in you what you can't see in yourself. But it's also a reminder in this story that Paul has given to us that God doesn't show favorites. You know, that God is an impartial judge. He isn't looking and saying, well, I get to, you know, that, yeah, they've, been, they've been going to church for a long time, so I go, I'm going to grade them on a different... He grades everybody on the same scale. There's no curve, there's no way of... But it's, it's an impartial judge. And that's good news. Because you think, well, what if I'm not one of the chosen ones? What if I'm not... Is God going to make it harder for me? Well, Paul's saying, no, God is an impartial judge. And his judgment, as Paul is explaining here, and we'll expand on that in the coming weeks, is based on what we do, but he gives us the ability to do the good things. His judgment is based on our faith in Christ. It's based on righteousness. It's based on all these different things. And Paul's just working through part of it here. And that's where we get in that danger of like, we get focused on a couple of verses and say, well, here's what Paul says here, and it contradicts what Paul says here. Paul's not expecting you to just read a couple of verses and say, oh, here's everything Paul said. It's no different than if you were to listen to one of my sermons and just take three minutes out of it and say, well, here's what Pastor Carl thinks about God. Everything he thinks right here in these three verses, these two minutes of this video clip. And it's the same thing if we read Paul, we think, well, Paul's saying this here, but then he contradicts himself later, and then he contradicts James. And what's that? We have to see it as a big picture. And the big picture is this gospel of God that is the, the righteousness of God, that God is making things right. And one of the things that He's making right is us. One of the things that God's righteousness, the power of the gospel for salvation, is the power of God to make us right. And so that's part of what we're doing as we confess our sins and we recognize our failings. It's not us just going to God and saying, God, I'm sorry because I have this, gossip, this problem with gossip and I'm going to try harder this week, God. Really, I am. And, I, and I'll fix it, I promise you. And God's saying, no, you won't, but I will. And I can. God, I have this problem with envy and I have this problem with slander. And God says, I know. And the power of the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, is the power to make you right and to make you, enable you, empower you to do the good. And that's good news, because I don't want us to leave here thinking, oh, I'm terrible, I just need to try harder this week, I need to do better this week, I need to do the right things, because God's going to judge me based on what I do. And if I don't work hard, if I don't pull myself up by my bootstraps, if I don't try harder and do the right things, then God's going to judge me in the end. 
Because if that's what we believe, we're only seeing part of the picture. Because God isn't leaving us alone in our sins. But instead, the gospel is the power to do the good. That God is enabling us to do the right thing. It's the power of God for salvation. To lean into His power and His grace, which is not, which is forgiveness, but it's also the power to do the good. So may you experience and be empowered by God's grace this week. Amen.